This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. On August 24th, 2017, SpaceX's Falcon 9 rocket took off from Vandenberg, California. It was the company's 12th launch of the year, a confident demonstration that private enterprises could keep up with government agencies like NASA. But this Falcon 9 launch was special. Usually, spacecraft are too heavy to ascend directly out of Earth's atmosphere. Instead, their takeoff is at an acute angle since this burns less fuel. SpaceX's new vessel, however, was especially light and managed to fly almost directly upward. As it hit the upper atmosphere, the craft emitted a massive, powerful shockwave. The shockwave tore a 560-mile hole in the ionosphere, the portion of the atmosphere that absorbs solar energy and makes radio communication possible. In addition, the Falcon 9, like every other spacecraft in history, emitted soot and compounds that contained chlorine and alumina. These emissions contribute to the breakdown of Earth's ozone layer. Luckily, the ionosphere hole would repair itself in about three hours. But the ozone damage would last three to four years, and future launches would almost certainly rip the delicate atmosphere layers apart again. If private spaceflight becomes the norm, there's no telling how much the Earth's upper atmosphere could change, or what effect this will have on humanity's survival. This is The Dark Side Of, a ParCast original, a show where we will delve into the seedy underbelly of pop culture icons and historical events. We aim to expose the ugly truth behind cultural moments and public figures we hold most dear, proving that there is always more to the story than meets the eye. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm Kate. This is our seventh episode on The Dark Side of Space. While the quest to put a man on the moon and explore the great beyond has always been a trophy on the shelves of U.S. history, we're digging just a little deeper into what really happened to get there. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify, just open the app and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. Last week, we discussed the finances of space travel and the ethical debates surrounding that expense. 
This week, we're turning our focus from financial costs to the environmental hazards. We'll explore the atmospheric emissions spacecraft produce and their effect on the ozone layer. We'll also examine the dangers of space junk and how, by exploring space, humanity might inadvertently trap ourselves on our planet. And finally, we'll discuss interplanetary mining operations and their connection to a possible galactic genocide. It's easy to ignore the fact that rocket launches have environmental impacts. After all, spaceships are constantly leaving the Earth, and it's admittedly a majestic sight to behold. Do we really want to consider how much pollution they can create from hundreds of miles outside the atmosphere? In reality, spaceflight is incredibly resource-intensive, and the environmental impacts begin before the vessels are even constructed. Rocket ships are often made from titanium or aluminum, which are strong enough to withstand the immense heat and pressure of the launch process. If they're manned, they'll also contain fuel cells to provide electricity, which are made of nickel, stainless steel, and titanium. Such rare metals must be extracted from the Earth, often in unsustainable ways. Nickel processing facilities emit hundreds of thousands of tons of sulfur dioxide annually. But U.S. officials ensure that most of the environmental damage happens overseas. They import more than 10% of the world's nickel supply from countries like Canada, Norway, and other nations. Not exactly comforting. For example, in 2016, a major nickel processor in Norilsk, Russia, produced so much waste, the local rivers ran red. In addition, the process of extracting iron produces caustic acids that can kill plants and animals and pose a serious threat to humans if they're consumed. They infiltrate streams and rivers, or soak into the ground where they remain for thousands of years, even after a mine is shut down. Titanium isn't much better. The extraction process lasts nearly 17 days, and it generates highly toxic gases as a byproduct. Titanium-derived gases are explosion hazards when heated, which is a bit of a problem since the extraction process involves heating the ore to over 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. But building the rocket isn't the only concern prior to takeoff. It also needs a launch pad that's about a mile and a half in diameter. For safety reasons, launches are far from populated areas. And as we mentioned before, most spacecraft take off at an almost horizontal trajectory, which means they need a lot of open land or water to fly over. That's why so many space expeditions begin in Florida or California. The ocean provides an ideal empty stretch. However, these swampy beaches host some of the Earth's most threatened ecosystems, and the exhaust, noise, and light pollution associated with a rocket launch can disrupt the local species. In August 2019, SpaceX released a report on the environmental impacts of a proposed super-heavy launch vehicle mission at Florida's Kennedy Space Center. They identified hundreds of species of plants and animals that lived at the proposed construction and launch site. These included threatened and endangered species like the American alligator, wood stork, marine turtle, gopher tortoise, and the bald eagle. 
The report predicted that the project could disrupt marine turtles' reproductive process. The bright floodlights at the launch pad would interrupt the animal's nesting season. And overall, the heat and noise associated with takeoff was disturbing to the wide range of local wildlife. Nevertheless, SpaceX determined the biological impact of the mission was insignificant. NASA's Engineering Management Board, which informally oversees space launches industry-wide, took them at their word. These were the only people giving approval, since there's no real space travel regulatory body. Of course, the EMB was inclined to support space missions, even if they disrupted turtle habitats for years after the launch. They accepted SpaceX's proposal to construct and launch the Super Heavy Launch Vehicle, a craft that could carry satellites or even passengers into Earth's orbit or to Mars. As of this recording, the project is trying to hit an ambitious launch date of sometime in 2020. Assuming SpaceX hits this target, they'll need to buy a lot of propellant. In order to escape Earth's gravity, the super-heavy launch vehicle, like any other rocket, has to reach a minimum speed of 7 miles per second. This creates a problem for engineers. It takes an immense amount of fuel to reach those speeds. But every extra gallon of fuel adds to the rocket's weight, meaning it needs even more just to take off. So they have to use fuel that is both compact and powerful. This is sometimes a blend of powdered aluminum, a lightweight fuel, and ammonium perchlorate, an explosive that ignites it. At other times, they use RP-1, a highly refined kerosene. On the upside, spacecraft account for a very small percentage of all greenhouse emissions. But that number is only going to keep increasing at a rate of about 8% per year. This is in part because private companies like SpaceX are competing with government initiatives like NASA. According to EOS, a hub for space-related news, an estimated 200 rockets will launch in 2025, and that rate could rise to 400 launches in 2030. It's impossible to predict exactly how 400 rocket launches will change Earth's atmosphere. The emissions are different from the pollution caused by cars or factories, which generally rise from the Earth and permeate the atmosphere from below. But spacecraft spew their emissions directly into the stratosphere as they pass through. We're not entirely sure what harm this causes, if any. Climate science is still in its formative years, with more unknowns than knowns. So nobody can say what alumina and methane will do to the stratosphere. Historically, this wait-and-see attitude hasn't worked out well for humanity. And by the time we know how the climate is changing, it may be too late to reverse course. Best-case scenario, rocket emissions could actually be beneficial. Some studies suggest that rocket emissions can reflect sunlight back into space, helping to cool the Earth. The problem is, we don't understand enough about how the emissions and atmosphere interact to control the cooling process. Nobody knows how many launches would be needed to cool the planet at the right rate. Maybe we'd overcompensate, triggering a dangerous period of global cooling. Or such a practice could have other unintended consequences. We're not likely to find out what these are anytime soon, however. 
the space industry doesn't have any kind of formal climate advisory or regulatory body. Even legislation like the Clean Air Act doesn't regulate rocket emissions, nor does the FAA set upper limits on spacecraft discharge. So any efforts to mitigate climate change or reduce the space industry's carbon footprint relies primarily on guesswork. If lawmakers tried to rein in rocket emissions, it would be hard to predict which rules would be effective. In the meantime, scientists with NASA, SpaceX, and other facilities gamble with the integrity of our atmosphere each time they launch a vessel into space. According to them, the benefits outweigh the risks. Interplanetary travel could give humanity the means to explore the solar system and maybe even colonize Mars. Admittedly, we may need those colonies, especially if space travel poisons the Earth's oxygen supply. But unfortunately, we only have a limited amount of time to get started with these efforts. Because the litter we're putting into Earth's orbit might impede future space travel forever. Up next, space junk threatens all life as we know it. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Now, back to the story. Space travel has dire environmental consequences. Nearly every rocket is made of titanium, iron, and nickel, which pollute the environment as they're mined. They're then assembled into a ship that threatens endangered species during liftoff. And on the voyage, spacecraft spew methane byproducts and alumina into the stratosphere. Researchers have no idea what sort of long-term consequences this pollution will have. But a space vehicle isn't only leaving particulate behind. It also sheds large rockets and boosters as it ascends. A rocket launch requires a delicate balance to escape Earth's gravity. As we noted before, the vessel needs to burn massive amounts of fuel to achieve a minimum speed of 7 miles per second, also known as escape velocity. Once the methane fuel is burnt, the empty tanks and thrusters are just dead weight. So while the craft rises, it sheds equipment that's no longer necessary. This ensures that the vehicle is as light as possible and can actually reach space. As for the pieces that it releases, they plummet back to Earth. Roughly two-thirds of our planet's surface is covered in water, so most rocket parts end up in our oceans. Sometimes those parts can be recovered and reused, but that recycling process wasn't invented until 1980. The hundred or so prior launches still pollute the water. 
And even since then, many pieces land in unexpected places or aren't reusable. About half of all separated rocket parts are left to sink. As we mentioned before, most spacecraft are made of titanium, nickel, and iron. There are already natural titanium and nickel deposits deep in the ocean. But before rocket parts can join them at the bottom, they have to pass through the waters above. Along the way, these pieces can break down and be eaten by animals such as mackerel, squid, and octopi. These, in turn, are eaten by swordfish and sharks, which feed even larger predators, like sperm whales. A 2010 study of sperm whale tissues found that they had unusually high concentrations of heavy metals, including titanium, in their flesh. Now, we know you're not chowing down on sperm whales for dinner, but the heightened titanium in their flesh indicates that all seafood may be dangerous for human consumption. Mackerel and octopi grace menus around the globe. And for context, the mercury concentration in sperm whales was over 16 times higher than safe levels for human consumption. Granted, rocket parts aren't the only source of titanium ocean pollution, but they're not exactly helping matters either. Nickel poses other concerns. The oceans have no natural filtration process to remove nickel deposits. And historically, they haven't needed one. Every year, all of the rivers and streams on our planet deposit about 0.3 micrograms of nickel into the ocean. In other words, it would take almost 30,000 years for the oceans to naturally accumulate enough nickel to equal the weight of a feather. But hundreds of times a year, boosters made of nickel compounds, which weigh tens of thousands of pounds, plummet into the sea. And concentrated nickel makes fish mutate. This can be so damaging as to create an entire school of fish whose gills are warped. They can't filter oxygen or carry it into their body's bloodstream. Eventually, they die. But iron might be the most dangerous pollutant of all. According to a paper by climate scientist Peter Liss and his team, ocean iron feeds phytoplankton, which in turn emit greenhouse gases like nitrous oxide and methane. Not only does this contribute to global warming, but these phytoplankton also breed bacteria that consume underwater oxygen, suffocating fish and other ocean life. On the other hand, some booster rockets and other machinery don't plummet into the ocean right away. If they separate roughly 99.5 miles above the Earth's surface, they won't actually fall at all. They'll settle into a steady orbit around the planet. These pieces, which include shedded thrusters, deactivated satellites, and even wreckage from past accidents, are called space junk. Earth has a lot of space junk, about 22,300 pieces that we know about, and an estimated hundreds of thousands more items that are too small to detect. At this point, a bit more context would be helpful. After all, space is big definitely big enough to contain hundreds of thousands or even millions of pieces of space junk. But humanity is also very good at polluting big areas. Take a look at our oceans, for example. Christopher Newman, a professor of space law, explained that historically, researchers operated under a belief system called 
Big Sky Theory. That's the idea that the space above our Earth is so infinitely large, any pollutants we might introduce would be negligible. On a galactic scale, that's accurate. The problem is, the space around Jupiter or Pluto, or even outside our solar system, isn't very useful to us Earthlings. And the belt of debris around our planet is growing every year. In order to maintain an orbit, space junk travels at incredible speeds, up to 17,000 miles per hour. And if two pieces collide, the force is multiplied to over 35,000 miles per hour. At those speeds, even a tiny crash is explosive. In fact, one small piece of space junk that's only a few inches long can easily smash a functioning satellite into thousands of pieces. And since orbiting debris can't be steered or controlled, there's no way to prevent these impacts. So the amount of space junk in orbit around Earth is growing at an exponential rate. You really don't want 22,300 pieces of metal space junk orbiting around your planet. But there's also not much you can do about it. Researchers have proposed various ways to collect the debris and return it to Earth. Perhaps they could fire lasers to disintegrate the largest particles or knock them out of orbit. Or they could launch satellites armed with giant nets. But as of today, these tools are merely theoretical. And if we were to implement them, their constructions and launches would be resource-intensive, just like rockets. In the end, the best and most practical way to eliminate space junk is to avoid creating it in the first place. The UN and NASA have both committed to bring satellites and other craft back to Earth before the end of their life, rather than abandon them in orbit. Unfortunately, they didn't make that determination until after the United States, Russia, China, and other space agencies had already abandoned an estimated 2,600 satellites. And of course, the new measure assumes that every mission goes according to plan, and that operators don't lose control before a craft can be brought home. Even if 90% of all vessels are successfully directed back to Earth, space junk will still multiply at an exponential rate, which means for the most part that we just have to wait for the debris to fall on its own. It's incredibly difficult to maintain an ongoing perpetual orbit. As satellites hit pockets of air, they slow down and drift closer to the planet. In addition, orbital objects don't have a totally round path. The Earth's shape and surface irregularities, like mountains or continental rises, can alter the space junk's course. All these factors conspire to continuously tug it lower. Over time, an orbital path becomes more of a very slow, very drawn-out fall. Every piece of space junk is inching closer to Earth's surface with each arc around the globe. Eventually, it will get low enough that gravity will become more powerful than its orbital velocity. And the object will plummet. As it enters the lower atmosphere, the friction will cause it to ignite and burn up. And statistically speaking, it'll probably lose most or all of its mass burning up. But titanium and iron rocket parts don't incinerate easily. That's their whole point. They were designed to withstand the heat and pressure of launches, which means they hold up well during re-entry, too. 
So bits of debris that contain these materials transform into sizzling pieces of molten metal, 200 to 400 pieces of which land on our planet every year. That toxic brew is most likely to land in the ocean. But since it can't be steered, there's always some risk it will fall to the ground instead. Luckily, only 10% of the Earth's land is inhabited by humans. The rest is covered by wilderness and farming fields. So it's pretty unlikely you'll be hit by a falling piece of space junk. Most will take a long time to get anywhere near you anyway. The entire process from the first orbital arc to impact with the Earth takes about 25 years. In the meantime, the wreckage continues to encircle the globe, sometimes colliding and exploding into more debris fragments. For example, in 1996, a piece of defunct rocket collided with the Cerise, a French spy satellite. The 11 million pounds Cerise had been in orbit when the crash happened, causing it to spin out of control and become inoperable due to damage. Over a decade later, in 2007, the Chinese government intentionally destroyed one of their own deactivated satellites. They launched a missile that shattered it into 3,000 pieces, which only compounded the orbital debris problem. The last recorded space junk collision happened in 2009. The U.S.'s Iridium-33 satellite crashed into a deactivated Russian Cosmos 2251 satellite. The wreck created 2,000 pieces of debris. And one of those pieces was detected by the crew of the International Space Station on March 23, 2012. It was headed right toward the station. Ordinarily, the crew has the ability to move the ISS and avoid collisions. But this stray piece snuck up on them. With no way to avoid it, the ISS crew prepared for a potential crash. If the debris struck the station, it could puncture a hole and blast their oxygen into space. For safety, the six astronauts loaded into the station's two Soyuz escape capsules and waited. All they could do was sit and hope their fragile orbital home wouldn't be destroyed. Luckily, the ISS didn't meet with disaster that time. The space junk passed within 14 miles of the station, avoiding collision. After an anxious, sleepless night, the astronauts were cleared to return to the station proper. But their caution proved to be well-founded. Four years later, in 2016, astronaut Tim Peake took a photo of a nick in the ISS's cupola window. The 31.5-inch pane had received a divot from a tiny piece of space junk, which might have been no bigger than a fleck of paint. Typically, pieces smaller than half an inch don't pose much of a safety issue for spacecraft. Sure, they might leave nicks or dents, but most spacecraft have reinforced windows and walls to ensure that even the fastest moving bits of space dust won't trigger fatal accidents. And pieces that are larger than two inches are relatively easy to detect. Scientists know where they are and can maneuver satellites, spacecraft, and even the ISS to avoid them. But space junk that's between half an inch and two inches is the most dangerous. It's big enough to cause real damage, but small enough that it's difficult to track. Researchers aren't even sure how many pieces of mid-sized debris are orbiting the Earth. 
which means that every time we launch a spaceship, we're running the risk that it might collide with a bit of debris, puncturing a critical piece of equipment. The more vehicles we launch off-planet, the more space junk accumulates. And as it gets more concentrated, we get closer to triggering Kessler's syndrome. That's a hypothetical worst-case scenario posited by NASA's Donald Kessler in 1978. It presumes a situation where we cross a tipping point and the space junk triggers a space travel apocalypse. Existing satellites and spacecraft inevitably collide with existing space junk, splitting apart and compounding the problem. We'll be unable to launch new rockets or vessels. Any attempted mission will be doomed to collision, explosive decompression, and death. There would be no way to leave the planet or explore space. No way to replace the broken satellites. Which doesn't sound completely catastrophic, until you consider the space-based technology we'd lose here on Earth. No more television or radio signals. No GPS devices, weather tracking satellites, or Starlink internet signals. The Hubble telescope would never take another photograph. The ISS would be abandoned forever before it inevitably shatters into millions of pieces. This also means no more deep space satellites, no search for intelligent life or colonies on Mars, no boldly going where no one has gone before. Humanity would be doomed to live out its existence, trapped on a single planet. And maybe that's not such a bad outcome. Space travel sounds romantic, but human beings tend to bring our troubles with us when we leave the Earth. In fact, some researchers fear that interplanetary travel and resource extraction might inevitably cause an extraterrestrial genocide. Up next, the dangers of pollution on the Moon and Mars. Now, back to the story. Spacecraft are incredibly resource-intensive. Rockets are built of rare metals like titanium and nickel, and they spew alumina and other contaminants into the stratosphere. Even worse, during the launch process, they shed boosters and thrusters, which become space junk. This debris tends to encircle the Earth for decades at a time and could trigger the Kessler effect, an apocalyptic scenario that would kill all future hopes of space travel. But we're not to that point yet. Federal and private initiatives alike are still trying to carry humanity into space. Along the way, astronauts have made their mark, literally. The surface of the moon is littered with the remains of past explorations. Think moon buggies, rocket pieces from the Apollo missions, and lunar robots and probes. Those few astronauts who set foot on the moon left equipment behind as well. A metal rod that Edgar Mitchell threw like a javelin. A Bible David Scott left in a moon buggy. Three golf balls Alan Shepard hit during the Apollo 14 mission. Most of these were left behind to ensure the spacecraft was light enough to make it back to Earth. As we mentioned before, takeoff requires a delicate balance of weight and thrust. Rockets consume massive amounts of fuel, which is heavy and thus demands even more power. The same is true of re-entry. Even light increases in weight can be disastrous. 
If astronauts want to carry samples like lunar rocks back to Earth, they need to leave something else in their place. Usually, that means waste. Human waste, to be exact. 96 bags of feces, urine, and vomit lie on the surface of the moon, left behind by Apollo astronauts. Ironically, NASA scientists are eager to get the discharge back. They could study it to learn how human bacteria mutate in space. But there hasn't been a practical opportunity to obtain this bio-waste yet, so it too remains on the moon, waiting to greet any future astronauts who make it to our only natural satellite. Meanwhile, lawmakers worry about the very real possibility that private astronauts will damage those remains. In 2007, Google offered $30 million in prize money to anyone who could land a craft on the moon, travel 500 meters across the surface, and then transmit a broadcast back to Earth. Corporations like SpaceX promise that they can launch lunar missions of their own by 2022. If too many projects reach the lunar surface, they could inadvertently destroy valuable items like the bio-waste. Or they might mar nostalgic relics from human history, like the Apollo 11 landing site, which still hosts the first human footprints ever left on the moon. To protect these historic artifacts, the Lunar Legacy Project, a team of professors and graduates from New Mexico State University, have proposed that the lunar surface be declared a UNESCO World Heritage Site. This would classify it with Australia's Great Barrier Reef, the UK's Stonehenge, and the Great Wall of China. These sites often get extra protection, even without formal legislation, as the general public can recognize their cultural importance. And the preservation measures forbid certain potentially eco-hazardous practices including mining. And space mining is a real possibility, and an incredibly lucrative one at that. Elizabeth Pearson, a reporter with Science Focus magazine, described it as the new gold rush. Minerals that are rare on Earth, like nickel, gold, platinum, and iron, are plentiful on asteroids. If robots could be deployed to space, they could easily extract these elements. In theory, it's not the worst idea. Low-gravity environments would make mining less energy-intensive, and it would eliminate the environmental risks that threaten the Earth. While asteroids are rich in metals, the Moon could be a valuable resource as well. It has veins of platinum, gold, and water, which could be split into its composite oxygen and hydrogen and converted into fuel. But just like Earth mines, a theoretical lunar mine would be huge, even large enough to be visible through a telescope from the Earth's surface. That means that stargazers wouldn't be able to look at the unmarred moon anymore. They'd see a surface scarred by extraction operations. That's assuming you'd see anything at all. Mining operations could spew gases into the moon's thin atmosphere cloaking it in a constant hazy cloud. Imagine aiming your telescope into the sky and seeing only a fuzzy blob of light. Granted, lunar mines might sound a bit out there, but the technology is closer than you might think. 
On April 6, 2020, President Donald Trump signed an executive order on encouraging international support for the recovery and use of space resources. The order declares the United States' supposed right to mine the moon, asteroids, and other celestial bodies. It acknowledges that the U.S. has never entered into any treaties regarding the use and exploitation of the moon. And it asserts that other countries have no authority to halt or slow America's lunar mining operations. Of course, this declaration neatly sidestepped the implications of the 1967 Outer Space Treaty. That agreement, which the United States did sign, stipulates that all space missions should be for the benefit of all mankind. This executive order, by contrast, adopts an America First attitude. If the rest of humanity wants to mine the moon, they'll have to develop their own space programs. The moon isn't the only candidate. Jupiter could be a rich source of helium-3, which is used in nuclear fusion. Mars could produce nickel, copper, titanium, and platinum, all of which are key for future space endeavors. But Martian mining operations could also have severe unanticipated consequences. Researchers theorized that three to four billion years ago, the Red Planet had an atmosphere somewhat like Earth's. It may have hosted liquid water and theoretically thunderstorms. Potentially, Mars even had life. And it's possible that some kind of Martian bacteria could still be alive, frozen in ice beneath its surface. By contrast, large-scale mining operations could pollute these frozen groundwaters. It would be too easy for miners to wipe out all Martian life without ever realizing it existed. Unfortunately, that risk applies to every other planet as well. We can never say with 100% certainty that there aren't living organisms on another world. They might be hard to find, but there's no way that we could explore another planet so thoroughly that we could guarantee it's uninhabited. Even asteroids, which are too small to evolve life on their own, could carry panspermia, or alien microbes from other worlds. Interplanetary mining operations aren't only a risk to extraterrestrial life, they could be dangerous on Earth, too. We'd be pumping water and ore from these alien worlds and shipping it back to Earth, and there's no way to ensure those resources aren't contaminated with alien bacteria or viruses. It's impossible to predict how humanity would respond to an infectious agent from another planet. It might be incompatible with the human body, posing zero threat. On the other hand, an extraterrestrial germ could be extra deadly because we'd have no natural defenses against it. Picture smallpox, which wiped out roughly 20 million Native Americans after Europeans first arrived in the Americas in the 1490s. Then expand that to a global scale. In short, any venture to outer space carries immense risk. If we want to avoid a species-wide extinction event, we must seriously consider the environmental impacts of any space mission. Whether it's a Martian mining operation, or a SpaceX Falcon 9 launch that might punch a hole in the atmosphere, or a satellite that's doomed to become space junk, any launch carries major consequences. And we'd do well to consider the fallout before 
we act. Dr. Mary Cleave would agree. In November 1985, she gazed out her window at a blue and green earth spinning gently below. She was spending a week inside the Atlantis shuttle and had a lot of time to reflect on the planet beneath her. In 2015, she released a video explaining how that trip shaped her attitudes toward conservation. She said, when you look at your planet from space, it's beautiful, fragile, and there's this little thin layer all the way around, our atmosphere. And that's the only thing that protects us from the really bad vacuum in outer space. We need to be really careful with it. Sadly, Dr. Cleve's words have not proved prescient. Humanity has been astonishingly careless with space. And if would-be explorers don't adjust their practices soon, their missions to the stars might spell the end of our species. Thanks for listening to The Dark Side Of. Next week, we'll examine how billionaires are rapidly changing the space industry in what has become the new space race. You can find more episodes of The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. Just open the app, and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. The Dark Side Of was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Carly Madden. This episode of The Dark Side Of was written by Angela Jorgensen and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. <laughs>